All right. Good morning again, everyone. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to page 1014. We're going to be taking a look, continuing in our sermon series on 1 Peter today, starting from verse 3 and going through verse 12. And while you're turning there, just uh, I'll recap a little bit. Uh, last week, we explored the reality that our situation today is very similar to the situation that First Peter was addressed to in the first century around the middle of the 60s AD. Uh, the new Gentile Christians had come into faith and were learning about Jesus and were excited to be Christians and to know God's love and his salvation. But they were finding that their new faith was not so much welcome in the surrounding culture. And so the early Christians were experiencing some persecution and some suffering as a result of their faith. And they were surprised by this. They were dismayed. And so P Peter, having heard about the Christians in what is now Western Turkey, the fact that they were uh, upset and concerned about this, wrote them a letter to say, you're exiles here. Uh, you are strangers in this world, and this suffering is to be expected to a certain extent. He wrote the letter in order to encourage them so that they wouldn't give up and lose hope in the face of the suffering that, we were that they were experiencing. And I made the observation that we today in our world, in our post-Christian society, may find increasingly as time goes that our Christian faith also meets with some resistance, perhaps some annoyance, and in worst case scenarios, even some persecution in our day and time as well. And so the letter of 1 Peter, written in the first century, speaks very much to us today to encourage us in the face of this testing that will occur. So today's message is, is about suffering, and it's about three different perspectives that the Bible gives us in the face of suffering that we may experience. And a couple side notes as we dive into this today. And, uh, and that, first of all, First Peter was written specifically with persecution in mind. So not just general suffering, but the kind of suffering that comes directly as a result of being faithful to Christ in the midst of whatever situation you may find. However, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this chapter 1 not only applies to the suffering of persecution, but to general suffering that we experience in our lives, just as the result of being in the world, the kind of world that we live in, which suffering and pain and loss is a reality that we all face. And so First Peter's message to them applies to us as well. The second note I'll make before diving into this as well is to say that Peter is going to be offering a perspective on suffering. God, through Scripture, is offering us a perspective on suffering. This is in no way meant to suggest that suffering is no big deal or that you should just, um, you know, brush it off your shoulders. It's not meant in any way to minimize the suffering that you may have experienced in your life. One of the things that I would, I would hate for people to, to come away with uh, a message to hear a pastor act as if suffering is not real, to act like pain is not real and lost, that um, as if we can just find a silver lining in, a, in any and every situation that we may face in life. So Peter is very realistic about the reality of suffering, the reality of pain in our lives, and those hard circumstances that many of us find ourselves in. So this is not a message meant to say to you, oh, it's no big deal, oh, there's a purpose in this, and just you know, act as if it's not a big deal. That's not what we're doing here. But rather, these perspectives are meant to help us realize that God is with us, even in the midst of whatever trial you may be experiencing, that you're not alone and that he, by God's grace, is going to walk with you through that and equip you and give you the strength and the courage you need so that you can persevere even in the midst of those very difficult circumstances that life often throws our way. 
Having said that, let's take a look at 1 Peter. I'll read it first, and then we're going to go through it pretty closely today. So starting at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the first perspective. Second perspective. In this, you rejoice, though now for a while, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Third perspective. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what time or what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open. We're going to be referring back to it a lot today. Uh, Let me just pray for us. I really appreciated uh, Elder Rudd's prayer for us this morning, but let me also pray. God, I I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word today, that you may encourage us wherever we are today, whatever situation that we may be facing. Would you give us a godly perspective on these things? Give us the courage we need to be able to endure, to be able to endure the testing and coming out uh, refined and purified in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I'm going to be offering us today, and if you're a note taker, you'll appreciate this. I'm going to be crystal clear. Three points, uh, three perspectives on suffering. And the first perspective is, is seen right here in verses three through five, and it's what I'm going to call the divine perspective. The, may, maybe I, I kind of thought maybe I should call it the eternal perspective, the divine perspective, something kind of in that, in that ballpark a way of looking at our suffering. Let me reread for us those first couple of verses. Uh, It starts with worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but in the midst of suffering, how do you approach it? It has to start with worship. right? We never stop worshiping. Uh, Worshiping is the way that we fight our battles. I love that Michael W. Smith song, right? When we're surrounded, how do we fight? Worship. Worship is God's gift to us. It's a way that even when, when life gets tough and things are difficult, we, we bring our attention and our, our minds and our eyes to the, to the Creator. And it's in worship that we, gra- we gain a greater sense of God's goodness and His power. We need the perspective of worship in order to be able to see our suffering and our situations from that heavenly perspective. So it starts with worship. He says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
This is very, very packed. There's a lot going on here. But he says, you know, blessed be God for his great mercy. Why? Because he has caused us to be born again. That, that word uh, is anagoneo in the Greek, for those of you who are interested, and it's only used by Peter. It's only used by Peter. He uses it twice in 1 Corinthians. And you might say, well, didn't Jesus say, say to be born again as well? He did in the English translation. But in Greek, Jesus, he literally said to be born from above. So this idea of being born again for Peter, as we're right, adopting a divine, eternal perspective on our sufferings and our trials, is very important to remember this spiritual rebirth. Peter and Jesus, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, he said, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how is it possible to be born again? I'm, you know, I can't climb back into my mother's womb and, and come out a second time. And he didn't understand that Jesus was not speaking about a physical birth, but a spiritual birth, a conversion experience, a spiritual transformation. And so Jesus and Peter, they're, they're talking about the very same idea. And the idea is that your mother, right, presumably your mother, you know, gave birth to you. And, you know, through your mother's womb, you came out and you entered the world and you uh, entered into a physical existence in the world, right? You, you received a physical body and you're in the physical world. And so Jesus said that in the same way that you were birthed from your mother, that you also have to be birthed from above. You have to have a spiritual rebirth that gives you a new nature. So from your mother, you received your physical body, your physical nature, but the spiritual rebirth gives you a spiritual nature. You are reborn, and Jesus said it is only when you have been reborn that you are able to see the kingdom of God. The reborn person, the spiritually renewed person, not only has an earthly nature, but you now have a spiritual nature. You, by your flesh and your blood, you are a participant in the physical, natural world, but by a spiritual rebirth, this being born again, you are now a participant in the kingdom of heaven. Peter would say to us, if you want to understand, not understand, but if you want to endure in your suffering, you have to remember the God of great mercy, what he's done for you, giving you the spiritual rebirth to participate in the kingdom of heaven. And what does that reality look like? He says that, again, continuing in, in verse 3 there, uh, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For Peter, if we were to, to ask Peter, you know, what is the big deal about this spiritual rebirth? Okay, so we've been spiritually reborn by God's mercy. We've come into the kingdom. What does that look like? And Peter would say, well, you've been reborn into living hope. That life, this new, this, this new life in the new reality of the kingdom is primarily a life characterized by hopefulness. That the life of a believer, the life of somebody who has been born again, what does it look like? It looks like hope. That there is something distinctly different about the people of God because they don't get discouraged in times of despair. Well, they get discouraged, but they don't lose hope in times of despair. They, incur, they experience hardship, but they're not demolished by it. They're not wrecked by it. There is an ability for the child of God, for the person who's been spiritually reborn, to remain optimistic and hopeful even in the midst of the worst kind of suffering. 
For Peter, hope is everything. Uh, you know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that verse that comes later in chapter 3 when he says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have whenever somebody asks you. Did you ever think it was interesting that he didn't say, always be prepared to reason to give for the faith that you have? People are not asking you about your faith. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Right? Do people care about what you believe if they don't see that your life is characterized by hope? Right? Do people want to know what we believe? Right? We could preach at people. We could tell people what they believe. But what do people want at the end of the day? What are people going to be encouraged by when they look at your life? Peter says they're going to ask you not about what you believe, but they're going to ask you about your hope. How is it that even when you're persecuted, even when you're suffering, that you seem to be able to persevere and to hang on and to not despair? How is it that you could be treated terribly by people because of your faith, but you don't revile them, you don't curse them, but you go on loving, you go on working, you go on hanging in there? People will want to know what you believe if they first see your hopefulness. So for Peter, right, we are born again into this new reality. We're given a spiritual rebirth. What does that look like? It looks like hope. But he says uh, in verse 4, what kind of hope of it? It, it is a living hope. It is a valid hope. It is a, a, a legitimate hope, not, a, not a, um, a, an imaginary hope or a, or a sort of a foolish hope, but a real living hope based on what continuing verse 4 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead the resurrect for Peter and for the New Testament church the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the defining mark of history and is the resurrection of Jesus which makes your hope valid the the people of the world might look at your life and say you know you're out to lunch I don't understand why you're hopeful the situation's terrible what you're experiencing is awful and yet the person who, who has a, a hope that is based in the resurrection of Jesus can say my hope is not foolish my hope is legitimate why because Jesus Christ is not dead he is alive he has been risen from the dead and so for Peter and for the, for the New Testament church, the reality of the resurrection is the basis for the hope. Does that make sense? The reason that we can be hopeful, even when uh, it doesn't look like a hopeful situation, is because what Jesus has done, because the fact that he did not stay dead. The resurrection changes everything. At the end of the day, if Jesus died and he remained in the tomb, then his teaching is foolishness, his life is false. His path is not smart. And any hope in Jesus would be completely foolhardy, right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then there is no basis for hope. But Peter would say the reality and the fact that Jesus did not stay dead, but that God raised him up to new life means that our hope has a sure foundation. And that as surely as Jesus raised from the dead, we believe in a God who raises the dead, a God who can take the darkest situation that exists and bring new life out of it. Friends, I think we need that hope. We need that hope. Things can get really difficult sometimes. All right, we can look from an earthly or worldly perspective at a situation, even a perspective, at, even a situation at a church, a situation in your life, and, and feel like from a worldly perspective, this is bad. This is not going to have a happy ending. And yet, we are born into what? Living hope based on the solid foundation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which assures us 
that in the end, that God will be victorious. We have a king over a kingdom who is alive. If you have a dead king, there's no kingdom. But Peter says he's alive. And so our hope has a basis, a real basis. So he goes on, take a look at verse 4. What is it exactly that we're hoping for? Uh, Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter knew that a major, major part of being able to uh, endure and to persevere in the midst of whatever situation that you may be facing is to know how the story ends, to be able to take a step back and, and, and take a look at the future, right? Have you ever heard of the fog of war? I think a lot of times we're stuck in the fog of war. You know what they say, that the, dark is, the, the night is darkest right before dawn. And sometimes in our lives, we find ourselves in these situations that are so dark and so desperate that we can't see what the end looks like. We, we don't know how it's going to work out. And so it is in those situations, we're in the fog of war, when everything is, is hazy and we can't see right, what the end looks like, that we have to take a step back, Peter would say, take a step back and look. You know how the story ends. You know what's going to happen uh, at the end of time when Christ comes back. Fix your eyes on that salvation that Jesus is going to bring to you when he returns. Back when I was in high school and I was about 30 pounds lighter, I used to run cross-country. I know you probably can't even believe it, but it's true. And uh, my parents were great. They always came to my games. I really appreciated that. So shout out to mom and dad uh, for coming to all my games. But cross-country was, you know, that's kind of a boring sport to watch, let's be honest, because uh, it's like three miles, and, you know, your, 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 your people are cheering for you, and they see you, and you go, zip, they cheer for you, and you go by, and then they have to wait, you know, 20 more minutes to see you again at the end. So it's not quite as exciting as soccer or basketball or something. But uh, when I would run cross-country, my parents would say, you know, okay, so there's this three-mile track, and there's some loops. Where do you want us to wait for you? And I, I knew right away where I needed them to be, because on this particular course was a very, very steep hill that was about two miles into it and it was at that moment of the race where you know my my heart is pounding so hard that it feels like I'm about to throw up and it's just about to bounce out of my chest and you know every bone in my body wants to quit and I knew that if I could see them there and, and see them cheering for me that that would give me the courage to to be able to persevere and that's what they did. And so I'm coming up that hill, and I feel like I'm going to die. My whole body just wants to quit, wants to, wants to um, you know, just, just leave the race. But it was there that um, they would wait for me and cheer for me, and that would give me the courage. You know, I don't want to look weak. I don't want to fall now. I want to I keep going and, and persevere and make them proud. For Peter, that, that, that message for you, that message to cheer you and to encourage you when life is hard and when you feel like giving up and you feel like you can't see what the end is going to look like is to come back to verse 4 and remember this inheritance, this imperishable treasure in heaven that God has that he's preparing for you. You know, Jesus' disciples, they were, they were discouraged uh, when Jesus was going to leave them. And he said, you know, don't lose heart. Let me comfort you. In my Father's house are many rooms. John 14, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you may be where I am going. Do you remember those verses in chapter 14? Friends, can you imagine that, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is in heaven right now preparing a room for you in his Father's house? I mean, have you ever gone home and, and your mom or your dad is, 
has prepared for you and they've made your favorite food and they're, they, they've, they've gotten all your favorite things and you're so excited to come back, that comfort and that familiarity of, of being home. Right? Can you imagine Jesus preparing a room for you? Getting it all ready, all set up for you. I know some of you, you're from Bergen County, so you have these big houses. You're like, I'm just going to get a room? Well, trust me, it's, it's not just any room, friends. It's not just any room. It's like, imagine a room at Buckingham Palace or something. I mean, this is a grand room that he's preparing for you. Trust me, there's going to be enough room for everybody. I know you're like, a room with 500 people? Are we really going to be able to? That's a pretty big, pretty big castle that God must have. But trust me, there's, there's, there's plenty of space. But just think about, no matter what you're in, what season of life you're in, no matter what you're going through, right? He's keeping that safe for you. He's waiting for you. He's preparing a room for you in the Father's house. It's so incredible. But how do we know that we're going to hang in there? How do we know that we're going to persevere through that, right? Maybe you're in that race right now and you feel like you're at the second mile and you feel like you're going to die and you want to give up. How do we persevere? Look at verse 5. He says, Who by God's power, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. His whole point here is that you are not on your own. As you're running this race, as you're persevering, as you're going through whatever suffering or trial or persecution that it is, you're not alone. He says you're being guarded. You have a guardian. You have a protector. You're not running this race alone, but you have somebody who's with you. He's cheering for you. He's encouraging you. He's saying, I'm going to get you through this, James. I'm going to get you through this, Megan, right? I'm with you. You're not running this race on your own. Psalm 23, one of the, the most beloved psalms in Scripture. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, even when it seems like from an earthly perspective everything is lost, you have a Savior, you have a Father who loves you, He's with you. He's protecting you. He's guarding you. And he's going to see it through to the end. He's going to finish the job. You know, in our, in our, I think in our, our daily lives, you know, we've experienced people who didn't finish the job. Right? People have let us down. Parents have let us down. Spouses have let us down. Maybe they came with us 50%, but they didn't, they didn't finish the job. They didn't come with us all the way. Uh, I have an uncle who lives in North Halden, and uh, he hired a guy to redo his pool. Um, the guy was great, doing the work, you know, fixing the tile, but he, he, he left, and my uncle goes out to look at the work, and he noticed that the grout hadn't been filled in between the tiles, so there's space between the tiles. So he called the guy back up and said, hey, you know, like, it's, uh, I need you to come back because the job's not quite done. You know, we paid you. We paid you up front. The guy didn't, he never showed. In fact, he stopped answering his, his phone, so, so now my uncle's got this pool. It's like half finished. Right? So we've been, we've been let down, but God's not like that. He's not like that. He's going to see the job through. He's going to be with you to the end. You know, there's a really special verse. It's not on the screen. Just listen carefully. Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. And I am sure of this, listen carefully, that he who began a good work in you will make sure that you carry it out to completion. That's actually not what it says. I, I misquoted it. I misquoted it. 
What does it say? What does it really say? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your perseverance to the end is not, is not based on your effort. It's God's promise to you. It's God's promise to you that he's going to help you see it through. He's going to carry it to completion in you. You have a God that's not giving up on you. He will never give up on you. He's going to make sure you make it to that room in heaven that Jesus is preparing for you right now. So friends, this is the divine perspective. This is the earthly perspective. This was the longest one. Uh, points two and three are a little bit shorter. Although I should, I should not say that because then I'll end up going long. All right, the second perspective, verse, the, the practical perspective, verses six through nine, we'll continue. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though that, re- that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice, it says in verse 6. So isn't that an interesting thing that he says, right? You're going through trials, you're going through tribulations, you're, you're experiencing suffering, but he says, in this you rejoice. So, so what is going on here? And this theme is actually, you know, James borrows that same language when he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So our trials and our tribulations, this is the, the second perspective, the, 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 the practical perspective. He says, when you encounter these things and experiencing these things, instead of despairing and giving up hope, he says you should rejoice. Your perspective on it should be one of, of, of excitement, of joy even. How could that be? Well, if we look at the Greek, that word for trial there is perosmos. It's a perosmos, and I, I share this with you because it's an important word to remember, but what Peter is talking about here are those things in life that happen that show you what you're really made of. So a perosmos, you can translate it as a trial, but you can also translate it as a test, right? And a test is there to help you understand the, the true nature of character or, or character of something. So that's what a perosmos is. These perosmos, these trials that we experience in lives are something that, that God allows to happen to us because they reveal the true character of the thing that is being tested. And tests are absolutely necessary because at times, if we're not tested and we don't go through those trials, then we'll never really know what lies within. We'll never really know the the true quality uh, of, of what's being tested. You know, I, I never liked tests uh, in college. They, they were my least, exams were my least favorite part uh, of college. And I'm sure if you're in school now, you hate tests. Why, you know, why do we have to have tests? Well, the thing is, you know, you could be going to class and you could be showing up, but maybe during class you're, you know, you're on your phone, you're distracted, or maybe you're preoccupied because you've fallen in love with somebody. And so you're, you're there, you're in class, but you're not really paying attention to what's happening. And so the teacher has to test you because they need to know, okay, you've done the work, you've been showing up, but at the end of the day, do you really know the material? And so these, these tests are necessary. And so, so, so Peter is saying as well that the reason that sometimes these things happen and come into our lives is because we need to know if our faith is real and if it is legitimate. Now, pay attention here. God is not testing you because he needs to know. God doesn't test you because he's not sure. Like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if John, if his faith is real, let me test him to, to see if his faith is real. Right? God's, not, God's not like that. God already knows. Did you know that the testing of your faith is for you? It's for you. 
Because I don't know about you, but, but I would like to have the confidence that when I go to meet Jesus, when he comes back again and I stand before the Father, right? I want to be able to do so with the uttermost confidence that my faith in Christ was legitimate. And I, I want to hear God say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. The reason that we have these tests and they come into our lives is because we need to be tested to know the, the true character of that faith that lies within our hearts. A lot of the hardship and the trials that we experience in our lives are for that very purpose. They're to reveal what's inside. Friends, I think that even churches are tested sometimes. Maybe we're being tested right now, right? We go through hardships. We go through uncertain times of uncertainty where we're scared and what is happening. But maybe we see that as a test. Maybe God is testing it to see what is this church's hope really based on? What are they really looking to to pull them through and to build this ministry? The test reveals what is inside. It is revelatory. This is part of the, the practicalist perspective. Interesting um, point here, too, is that that word perasmus can also be translated as a temptation. So isn't that, that interesting? That same word, perasmus, it can be a test or it can be a temptation. But that should make you question because, you know, we know that that doesn't Scripture teach. James says that God doesn't tempt us, perosmos. He doesn't cause us to have a, a, a perosmos in the sense of a temptation. But we do learn here that sometimes we are tested. So does God ever tempt us? No, God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us, right? So what's the difference? Well, a temptation is something there that the enemy uses in order to cause you to slip up. A temptation is something that would come into your life that is meant to pull you away from faith and to pull you away from trusting God. That, my friends, is not God's intent. God doesn't tempt you because it is never God's will to cause you to, to pull away from him or to lose your faith. The testing is meant rather to purify it's meant to solidify you and to help you, to cause you to be fully confident in the faith that you stand before God. Again, this is part of the practical perspective. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I had a lot of fun this week because I started uh, researching about, about gold and, and learning about the unique properties of gold. So gold, gold can go through a refining process through extreme heat, 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, in order to drive away the impurities. Uh, he's using a lot of this kind of metallurgy language, the testing and the purification of metal here. Um, Gold, I found out, is one of the most densest metals that exists in the periodic chart. Um, and it, it's considered across the world as one of the most beautiful forms of metal, right? Uh, gold has that beautiful yellow luster that is very unique. Um, it, it is pretty much in the ancient world, gold was recognized as valuable, kind of no matter where you were. And so that's why from the very earliest times, uh, commerce could be conducted with gold. Gold has unique properties in that it's very malleable and it's extremely, extremely durable, even to the elements. It's one of the most durable metal, uh, metals that exist, but it's also very malleable, which means that it can be shaped and it can be molded to, to fit different kinds of shapes. Uh, and an ounce of pure gold, this is very interesting, a tiny, tiny bit of gold can be hammered and hammered and hammered. And if it's 24 karat pure gold, did you know that no matter how much you hammer it, it doesn't form cracks 
around the side. But if you have a little bit of gold that has any impurities or it has alloys in it, that it'll form cracks. Pure gold does not form cracks, which is why you can take an ounce of pure gold and you can hammer it and hammer it, and, and it can create uh, up to and past 150 square feet of gold leaf from a single ounce of gold. There's no other metal that can be flattened to that level of, uh, of thickness and, and go that far. So metal in the ancient world as metal today is extremely valuable. But what is, what is Peter's point? Why is he talking about gold? Because he's saying that your refined faith, your faith, brother or sister, that is being tested through the fire, he says, as valuable as that gold is and as precious as it is, that your faith, which is tested, which remains true, remains rooted in Christ, is even more valuable than gold. Isn't that incredible? So think about that. With whatever you're experiencing, it's a test not to trip you up, not to get you to fall away, not to cause you to crack, but it is a test meant to reveal that you have something within you that God has placed there that is absolutely precious in the eyes of God, as precious as pure 24 karat gold, maybe even more precious. And then he goes on to say, and, and when I first preached this many years ago, I was, I, was, I was blown away by what he says here. Look at what it says, second half of verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I thought certainly what he has to be talking about there is that, that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, right, and Jesus comes back, then Jesus will be honored and glorified. It has to be talking about Jesus, but I look carefully at the text and I read through the commentaries, and that's actually not what it's talking about. When he says that your faith, right, so the tested genuineness of your faith, dot, 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 may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know whose praise, glory, and honor is talking about there? Yours. Yours. Your faith. That God is going to honor you for your faith. Jesus is going to commend you before the Father. You're going to be honored because your faith lasted through the fire. You hung in there. You stuck it out. You kept your eyes focused on, on Christ. Jesus before the Father is going to praise you. He's going to honor you. And you are going to re re receive an eternal reward of glory. It's amazing. It's amazing. So this is part of that eternal perspective. And, I, and my hope is that each one of us, sorry, it's part of the practical perspective. My hope is that each one of us has our eyes set on that moment where we come before the Father and he'll look at, to each one of us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, come. Take that room. I've been saving you that room. Come, dwell in my house forever. Receive the salvation that I've prepared for you. And that's why it goes on to say in verse 8, that even though we're in the midst of affliction and in the midst of these hardships, that we have an inexpressible joy that is bubbling up within our hearts. And we can't even put it to words, but we can't see Jesus in person, but we see him from a distance and we know that God is faithful. He's guarding us. He's going to bring us to our eternal home with Christ when he comes back. So that's the practical perspective. And the third and final historical perspective, verses 10 through 12. Take a look with me. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be searched and inquired carefully 
sorry, yours, search and inquire carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ Sorry, I got, I, got, I got lost here. Hold on. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels look. So that, that's a lot. What is Paul saying here? Or what is Peter saying here? The basic point is this. Look at the times that we're living in. Look at the times we're living in. Look at what is yours. Look at how fortunate we are to, to know and to have what we have. He said, if you go back, the ancient prophets, they're writing scripture, they were listening to God. They all were trying to figure out what was going to happen. They were searching. They were praying. Lord, when are you going to redeem your people? Right? When are you going to come and, and, and bring healing to this broken nation? When are you going to come and establish Israel? When are you going to send your suffering servant to come and take our sins away? The prophets, they, they, they sought with the greatest care, he said, to try to figure this out. But what is Peter's point? That they were getting ready and they were preparing, but they came to realize, and we know now, that they weren't serving themselves, they were serving you. Peter said, everything that came before was all leading to this moment now, but you, friends, you have a front row seat to this incredible thing which God has done in our time. You got to witness it firsthand. You saw Jesus. You heard the gospel. You, you've seen him resurrected. Everybody going before, they were eagerly anticipating this, but they didn't get to see it. And everything that they suffered and everything that they went through, they just had to trust. They, they saw from a distance. God would eventually make sense of it. But he says, but you now, you get to see it right before your very eyes. You have the fullness of revelation. We live in the, the culmination of all these ages. You know, we have some people here that are involved in, in Broadway and involved in shows in different respects. And it is a lot of work to get ready to, to launch a new Broadway show, you know? It takes months and months. The publicity, hiring the actors, building the set, you know, preparing the lights and the sound, learning the lines. Imagine all the preparation that goes into launching a, a new Broadway show. And let's just imagine for a moment that you get to be the lucky person who maybe you're, you're friends with the lighting person, hint, hint, who gets you a ticket to the opening show of a new Broadway show. And so let's say you go and you're excited and you're in the orchestra seat, right? Best seats in the house. And as the, they're gearing up, you can hear the, the orchestra is rehearsing, they're, they're, they're tuning their instruments, they're getting ready, and you're, there's that building sense of incitement, excitement. And let's just say that you're a really thoughtful person, and so as you're sitting there, you're imagining everything that has had to happen in order for you to be sitting there at that point in time, right, ready to watch this brand new show open, and it's opening night. And you know that they've been working so hard and so much money has been spent and all the actors and actresses and stagehands and the building crew and the tech crew and everybody has been preparing for this moment and now you get to enjoy and watch as this brand new show starts. Imagine the excitement and the joy you would feel. And Peter is saying, if you're in Christ and you know the gospel, you know about the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are at the show on the opening night. This is us right here, right now. This is the time we live in. He says, what does he say at the end? Even angels long, look, uh, long to look into these things. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, even the angels of heaven didn't have all the details, but you do. Even they long to look into this, but you, my friends, have heard the gospel preached. Think about how fortunate and how blessed you are to be able to have the fullness of revelation in Christ. 
so that we can be empowered and have hope that death does not have the final say, that there is resurrection. So there are three perspectives, three realities for us to consider. Will we make it? Will we make it? Or will we crack under the pressure? Will we, will we fail? Right? I know that each one of us, we hope we don't. We hope we can get there. We hope these things can help us. But the reality is that many of us will crack. We will crack. Right? Remember what I said when that, if you, if you take gold, if there's any impurities in the gold and you hammer the gold or you fire the gold to 3,000 Celsius to Fahrenheit, the impurities will, will start to come out. Or you hammer that gold, it's going to crack around the edges. And unfortunately, the reality is that we will crack too, right, if we have those impurities. Maybe you have cracked. Maybe you have cracked. I, I know I certainly have cracked. And so does that mean that there's no hope for us? Does that mean that God's like, you failed, you didn't stand the test, so therefore you're not going to make it, right? Is that, is that our God? In the ancient times, many Christians were persecuted later on, and they were brought before the Colosseum. And all they had to do was say three simple words, and they could be completely let off the hook. They said, just say, Caesar is Lord. If you say, Caesar is Lord, you're, you can go. You can go home. This will all be done. Or just burn this little bit of incense to Caesar. If you burn this little bit of incense to Caesar, everything will be okay. You can go home. And some Christians were so strong in their faith, so pure in their faith, that they would not say, I'm not going to say Caesar's Lord. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. And so they withstood the test, and they went to their death in the Colosseum. They were burned in the fire. They were fed to wild animals. But we also have historical records that many of the Christians did not pass the test. They gave up. Fine, fine. Caesar is Lord. Please, let me be done with this. Let me go home. I'm done with this Christianity thing. So are you passing the test? Or have we failed the test? Perhaps, you know, you were in a situation where you could have spoken up because of your convictions, but you stayed quiet. Or perhaps, you know, people were talking about what you did on the weekend. And so instead of saying, yeah, I went to church. I had a great time worshiping God. You, you kind of kept that quiet. You didn't out yourself as a believer. Or maybe you were in a compromising situation and you should have walked away, but, but you didn't. And so are we, are we finding ourselves cracking under the pressure, under the persecution uh, that we could experience? Maybe you are watching this sermon from YouTube and you've had a negative experience at a church and so you cracked under that and you've lost your faith in the church and you don't even want to show up at church anymore because you're so disenchanted with churches and you feel like God has failed in the church. In Japan, there is a very, very special kind of pottery and it's called kintsugi and it's extremely, if the real stuff is extremely expensive, but basically, an artist or a potter will take a broken pot or a vase and then they will put it back together. And they will use a special kind of gold cement to take each of those into It's a painstaking process to gradually fit all those pieces back together and to repair the pot. Right? The pot's broken. It can't be used. It, it can't hold water or liquid. But they will use that gold to fill the cracks and to bring the pot back together again. And you think, well, if you repair a pot, then, then maybe it'll look like new. But actually, that's not the goal of kintsugi. The goal of kintsugi, kintsugi, kin means gold, tsugi means to repair, is that the pot tells a story. And that when you see the gold in those cracks, right, it's a history, it's a story. And it not only is beautiful in and of itself, but it shows you the 
incredible craftsmanship of the artist who was able to take that broken pot and repair it. And friends, we have a God who can fix broken pots. We have a God who can fill in those cracks with pure gold and repair you. You know, there are a lot of broken pots in the Bible. Peter was a broken pot. David was a cracked pot. Peter was actually, Peter was a broken pot many times over. He was a broken pot when he denied Jesus. And then if you read Galatians, we we find out that he caved under pressure. Paul tells us, he kind of rats him out. But Peter, you caved under pressure to the Judaizers. You you separated, you didn't want to be persecuted by the Judaizers, so you separated yourself. And you, you completely failed that test, Peter. God can repair cracked pots. And your life, despite failures, despite the times where you didn't hold on to faith, right, can be part of a larger story about redemption because we believe in a God who raised Jesus from the dead. Death is not the end of the story. The victory of God is the end of the story. And so my hope for us is that our lives tell that story of a good and gracious God who works with cracked pots, who can repair us, help us to be faithful to the end, He's made a promise to us. He will bring us safely home. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we believe in you. We put our faith and trust in you this morning. Encourage us, Lord. Lift up our hearts. Give us the divine perspective on the suffering that we have experienced. Use our lives to show the world the true and living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus. Walk with us, be a shepherd to us in the valley of the shadow of death. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.